From a bird-watching nurse to a line-dancing firefighter, nobody's just one thing. That's why Polar Pop and Froster aren't either. Choose from all kinds of flavors and make your mix. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. From a bird-watching nurse to a line-dancing firefighter, nobody's just one thing. That's why Polar Pop and Froster aren't either. Choose from all kinds of flavors and make your mix. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Drive-In. I'm your host, Aaron Lopez, and this week we're joined by a special guest host. Uh, haven't been trying to get him onto the podcast for about a year now, and finally we got our our uh, schedules all synced up. Uh, Daniel Bokemper is here. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, so, okay, Daniel's a, uh, is it first cousin with uh, with Jordan? Yeah, yeah, uh, directly related to, uh, to Jordan. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I know. Oh, it's okay. I've I've learned to live with it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it it how we we met actually it came about in some uh, unfortunate circumstances. Uh, grand grandfather passed away last year, but um, it, within that, it was nice to see everybody. And I, for me, get to meet a lot of new people um, on that side of the family. And uh, we got to we got to talking, and uh, Dan- found out that Daniel's very involved in the movie scene, um, the movie reviews, and and. Uh, and journaling for uh, actually a couple different places. Um, so I'll just let you kind of introduce yourself. Um, what are some of the, the projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I'm centered primarily out of Oklahoma, but I work through a few uh, national publications. The probably first and foremost and maybe most relevant to to the listeners here would be the cinematropolis.com. Um, we're centered out of Oklahoma, but we cover a wide gamut of, of films, not just local things. And we were, well, we do reviews. Um, so I just had a review for, uh, Leica's, uh, newest animated film, Missing Link, uh, just this past week. We also do more like in-depth, like critical analysis. And what I mean is we usually take a, you know, a school of criticism or a school of thought and apply it to a particular piece of film, be that, you know, a feminist formalist critique, or maybe a a biographical critique, um, if it's as it relates to like a specific director or even a performer. So quite a few different approaches. And I think there's, we don't discriminate as far as what kind of films we approach. So we we tend to have a little bit of everything. Um, The other uh, publications I write for um, would be World Literature Today. That is uh, just entirely literature and uh, literary criticism. Um, I contribute to them regularly. You can find them pretty much anywhere, but probably most notably World Literature, uh, today.net or WLT.net. Um, and then a few other just random weird things. Um, I've done uh, interviews and, and features for wickedhorror.com. They cover pretty much everything related to the horror genre and macabre, as well as uh, a few local publications here like the uh, Oklahoma Gazette and, and Current Land. So a little bit of everything, not particularly good at any of it, but, you know, you just keep throwing darts at the board and, and eventually something sticks. So Yeah, it's not hard to see how it's hard to, to find some time. You're a busy man over there. Um, kind of. That's mostly the lie I tell. I'm actually just, <laughs> actually yeah, just no, drinking I, beer and hanging out. 
I've been able to, to check out a handful of those articles over on uh, the Cinematropolis, and they're they're really interesting. Um, I, I was actually interested, even I won't be doing an episode on Missing Link, but what were your thoughts on it? It did look pretty interesting. I liked it overall. Um, I and and this is coming from someone I I can't say there's a really a bad like a film. I poke fun at like the box trolls. <laughs> um, and maybe something technically Corpse Bride is Leica, but it's they're really just kind of the muscle, so to speak. They're, yeah. it, it's, it was Tim Burton's vision. Um, and the but I love them uh, overall. And Missing Link is is still good. It's great. It's worth seeing the rating I gave it, I guess, to put it on a squ- what we do at the Cinematropolis is like, a you know, pay whatever premium Dolby Atmos or, or IMAX or whatever, you know, the best setting you can see it in is like our highest recommendation. Then we go all the way down to like just completely skipping it. And I put this one as like the most comfortable matinee. Okay. Um, and that's, and that's really, so that's like a, I would say that's between like a seven and eight out of 10. Um, it, it's good, but I'm starting to realize that Leica does feel a bit hamstringed by their brevity. Like I know it's a children's film and it's unreason it might be unreasonable to have them longer than ninety minutes, but I, I was starting to think about Kubo and the two strings and I thought more so about missing link, how much these films may have benefited from maybe an additional twenty to thirty minutes, especially how concerned they are. I mean they're 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 predominantly character pieces and they have usually a couple different moving parts in them, um, as far as character development is concerned. So to to allow those to breathe a little bit and and, and really kind of fled their wings. I think it would be fine. And I don't think that would alienate too many audiences. But then again, I'm not, you know, I'm not really into marketing, especially children's films. So I, I might be talking out my ass <laughs> on uh, recommending what Leica should and shouldn't be doing. But but, but otherwise, a great film. I, I do think people should should find a way to see it in theaters if they can, just for the, the, the art alone. Yeah, and then, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Kubo. I, I still go down to this day to think that, uh, that I believe that Kubo got, st- uh, got robbed of a of an Oscar. Um, Who I've, beat it out? I can't, because that was 2000, I guess it was 2017. But I think it was that was Moana. Was it Moana? Yeah. Hmm. And I thought least Moana it, was good, but I think that, that as far as you know, an artistic approach that what Kubo was able to do, you know, Moana had the Disney name behind it, and I think that's why it won, but I, I believe as far as a piece of art, uh, Kubo was, was just phenomenal. I agree that I wish it was a little longer, but I mean, it just, it was so well done. Yeah, and it, I mean, just knowing the the stop motion animation and like if you if you can get a chance on YouTube, there's a uh, short like interview with Leica, and this is back when they were they were making Kubo, um, and it goes just in depth into just how long it takes for them to film every single scene and some of the lengths they go even to just remedy something or make something as simple as like getting a, a an, an accurate lighting ra- or a, <laughs> I guess realistic lighting rather than you know just dousing it with CGI, which would be an option. And, and not to say they don't use, you know, I mean, it is computer generation to some extent. Mm-hmm. They, they really like they built, if you recall the red skeleton from that film, kind of the first called yeah. the first boss encounter, I guess <laughs> it's like, um, you know, it's, it's like a two story high animatronic. Like it's really a giant skeleton that they built. Uh, just to nail down the, the, the specifics and the, and the look, I mean, that could have been something they could have made like what 24 inches tall and and Mm -hmm. maybe could have pulled it off, but they were looking for a specific feel and a specific sense of scale. And it really only worked 
by making it, I guess, to like again, it was over twenty feet tall. The actual animatronic yeah. they used for that sequence, so it, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And and they still do that here. And you kind of notice with Missing Link, it gets a little more, um, yeah. you know, more detailed. Kind of like how Pixar has slowly become a little more detailed, but I don't think we become quite. A, I think we become kind of like, uh, what's the word? Desensitized to that because we're used to computer graphics you know, getting better periodically. We're not used to seeing just puppets and animatronics um, gradually becoming far more detailed and ultimately a little better animated too. So, yeah, I mean, you look back know. at the, the original toy story and you know where we've come from there and it's just, it's, it's quite interesting or quite just incredible. Um, but if you do it in a gradual pace, you don't actually see where we've come. Right. It's, it's weird and it's incremental. And when you see those films, it's, it, it kind of, I think like Toy Story is probably timeless, but you, I mean, probably it is, <laughs> um, but it, it does look jarring. And like even another one that's like really kind of bad if you try to watch it again, like the original Shrek doesn't, oh, yeah. doesn't look very good now. And, and, and I, at the time it, it was, it was the, probably the best possible, um, you know, computer generated graphics or a, a you know, like a 3D animated film you can get, but it does feel a bit jarring when you see them now. And it's kind of hard to, to do. It's kind of like playing a, you know, going back to like an old video game or something, not to say it's bad, but like it, you, it takes a moment to acclimate to seeing it because at, at first you're just kind of stuck in like, I don't know if uncanny Valley is the right word, but you're definitely <laughs> on the precipice of something that makes you not trust what you're seeing. Exactly. Um, I always love the nostalgic aspect of, you know, you you play these old games or you go back to these old movies and they, they were a lot, they looked a lot better the, the first couple times you saw them, you know, and you go back to them afterwards and they still have that, that whatever, whatever it is that brings, brought you to them in the first place is right. you know, be a character or be uh, you know, humor or, you know, uh, action or whatever it might be. It's still there, but uh, like you said, it takes a little bit of time to adjust your eyes before you, uh, you know, can keep going. Right, and then there's instances like uh, you know when we reinvasion uh, old visions, maybe kind of like Hellboy. I don't know if I that was an <laughs> and it just it doesn't it never you never quite reset. To, it, it, it's perpetually on the verge of a kind of feeling like a fossil a little bit. But well, that was that was what we like to call a, a very nice segue. Right. Um, so this week, uh, Daniel and I checked out Hellboy, uh, the the reboot uh, directed by Neil Marshall. And I wasn't, I didn't realize I knew Neil Marshall had done a couple films. Um, I I had knew, known him from Doomsday, which I actually really loved um, in the mid two thousands when that came out. Uh, but also directed The Descent and uh, two a couple episodes of Game of Thrones. Oh, um, I didn't. I didn't even. I didn't even know. I didn't look at all who the director was because I assumed it was no one. And um, actually, the descent is is probably one of the best horror films of the. I would say the maybe not mid two thousands, but that era, like that decade, two thousand to two thousand ten. Yeah, well, we went through a real dry spell with horror during that time, so that one yeah. really stands out because it just. You know, not saying that it wasn't as good as it was, but it, it stands out amongst um, as, as being the front runner and kind of a. I mean, really, the only other thing that was coming out were Saw movies. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it was really well done. Um, but yeah, so uh, directed by Neil Marshall, starring David Harbour, Mila jo- uh, Jovovich, and Ian McShane. Um, so we looked at this one, um, and, you know, we'll get into the, um, the specifics of it here in a bit. Um, but before we look at that, we got a little bit of the taste of... Uh, 
your experience with movies, but like, what are some of your favorite films, genres, uh, directors, just so people have a, a, a little bit of a experience or a, a, a way of looking at it through your eyes when you give some thoughts on Hellboy. Okay. So I will, for the most part, gravitate towards character. Um, any, any character driven, really anything. And, and, and I think regardless of genre is going to probably entice me more so. And I think that's just maybe true of most film. You, you're, 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 I think Igmar Bergman, which would be a, uh, I, I hate, I feel like a, I don't mean to be a hipster and start with fucking Igmar Bergman, but, um, <laughs> Igmar Bergman is probably, um, that watching his films was maybe when I was younger, that was the first time I started to realize like what this is like cinema and film and, and maybe consider it art, you know, when I was like 13 or 14. Um, and he, he has a, a pretty telling quote in an interview where he, he mentions, you know, the, uh, and I cited this in our, uh, a recent us review I contributed to, uh, for the cinematropolis is that he, the, the human face is going to tell you, everything you need to know about a particular narrative or story more so than any amount of action you can see on screen. And I still think that believe that to be true. Um, not to say Igmar Bergman's the only one who, who understands that for modern directors, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson may be the, the kind of the, the, the shining beacon. I, I, I tend to apply almost every other film to his work. I really like, uh, Spike Jones. Um, as well, again, interesting character studies, but in settings that are fantastical. So like her, somebody falling in love with a uh, an AI or being John Val- Malkovich, him, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, this introspection into oneself, literally, and how that unfolds on screen uh, is just fascinating to me. So I, I mean, it, it but but, you know, again, Spike Jones, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, there's so many like recent directors, like of course um, Alex Garland uh, with Ex Machina and uh, more so Annihilation mm-hmm. is a film that really stuck out to me. Um, I'm I'm picking a bunch of white dudes. Uh, <laughs> I is not deliberate. Uh, Dennis Villeneuve, I guess maybe, uh, and I always mess up his name, but but the director of Blade Runner 2049 as well as Sicario. Uh-huh. And Arrival and the the imminent Doom film Dune film, which is maybe one of my most anticipated Dennis Villeneuve, which is usually he's putting characters in a uh, you know as a severe there's some violence that's being afflicted upon them. Yes. Um, Steve McQueen. Uh, sorry, it took eight tries to get to to a, a non-white director, but Steve <laughs> McQueen with Shame. Um, I have some reservations about 12 Years a Slave, and the only reservations I have involve Brad Pitt and uh, the the reason – I don't know why he injected a white savior into the film. But again, um, <laughs> characters that – yeah, I don't know. It, it, it It's weird. Um, back in the day, there's, there's a few directors that I, I feel like maybe if I become a little less cynical, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be able to approach them again. But like Sofia Coppola. Is another good one, and I think like Lost in Translation would be a, a film that has kind of rang true for me for for a really long time, and also is is approached more so from a kind of a feminine perspective. Um, but that's you know that's kind of it, I guess, in a nutshell. But I, I would say I don't really discriminate against genre because I think genre can be a vehicle for a particular didactic, and it doesn't you know. As long as your meaning is there and what you're trying to tell is meaningful and to some sense true, um, 
your your vehicle can be essentially anything. It doesn't matter yeah. where the setting is. And I, I, I would hold, you know, something like Hellboy and any superhero inspired film or any film that takes a, a, a premise that's, you know, the most outlandish as as possible. I, I would I would, um, you know, hold that to any standard when it, they succeed, they succeed exponentially. Um, and so I think maybe maybe my final point of a film that I really liked recently would be like, sorry to bother you. Um, that stylist. <laughs> it was weird, and it no, it gets you know to... I'm laughing because I was pulling that one up to ask you. I actually have it up as a what tab on my computer to say, "Hey, what were your thoughts on Sorry to Bother You?" Um, so that's that's funny. No, I there, absolutely yeah. <laughs> the the uh, you know the foresight there. I couldn't have planned it if I tried. Cool, awesome. Um, I'm not hacking into your computer and looking at what you're pulling <laughs> up, so don't don't think that either. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another one though, that like, it's a little tangential and it may kind of, some could argue that it like loses itself a little bit, but it's, you know, it's still a very important and I think necessary film. And I think I I will say, and I'm to cite Jordan Peele, get out might illustrate some of the points that, um, something like both sorry to bother you and dear white people, uh, Justin Simmons, uh, dear white people are, uh are uh, illustrating maybe a little more aptly that doesn't make those other films nonetheless valuable. I mean, sloppiness in filmmaking is, is very, if you want to call it sloppiness, I just think it's a stylistic choice. Um, in these instances is, is forgivable. Um, again, as long as your meanings there and your, your, you know, your didactic is something that, that, that is both important and not, you know, completely toxic, which, which I think something like, sorry to bother you succeeds in. Yeah. Well, good. I think uh, that definitely uh, that gives me more insight. So uh, listeners probably uh, are going to get some ideas. Um, <clears throat> so before we get started, something we do on the show is we look at some of the upcoming films. Um, you were not aware of this, so if you didn't write down the movies uh, that you, uh, the trailers that you saw for before uh, Hellboy, we'll see if any of these are specific ones that you've seen. So um, we had, uh, there really were, for most of the part, I, these are all trailers that I've seen before, but... Um, we had Brightburn, Good Boys, Joker, My Spy, Stuber, Anna, and John Wick 3. Um, the irony was not lost on me that uh, two Dave Batista movies played back-to-back. Uh, I did see that. They didn't show the Joker um, They didn't show the Joker film, but I realized it was two separate movies. Yeah. While I was watching, the, the I, I guess I wasn't paying attention or something, and I didn't realize they cut to another trailer. Yeah. And I thought, like... It just took an abrupt turn. Like the the yeah. I, what are the two Batista films again? What are those uh, called? My Spy and Stuber. Um, I mean, he plays a cop in both. Um, mm-hmm. He has a little bit more stubble in one, and the, he has a um, a child actor uh, as one of his cohorts. And then um, oh, I can't think of the actor um, in Stuber. Let me look it up here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very similar. I, I good for him for getting uh, a lot of a lot of work right now but at the same time uh, i think that they could have done him a, a favor by not putting them back to back and also they, like buddy cop film movies really right yeah. like they're yeah i'm thinking it's um oh let me find the oh it's a uh, kamal nanjiani or nanjiani i said that wrong um what yeah, uh, what was he in um uh, he was in the the big sick okay. um that's right. That yeah. was the okay. 
I love I him will... as an actor. I think he's yeah, he's so fun. He yeah. I, re- I remember uh, he jumps to mind as being kind of one of those special guest stars regulars on uh, Portlandia. Yeah, but I uh, haven't watched that in a while. But I, I do remember the first season was was pretty great. So I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I, Stuber looked funny. Uh, my spy just. I mean, it, my spy looked like the. Uh, uh, the game plan. I mean, it's like they're trying to make him into the next Dwayne Johnson. Um, yeah, I got... Doesn't, doesn't have the acting chops for that. Yeah, I got remnants of, like... It felt like, a, you know, I guess appropriately, it's it's Dave Batista, though I think his acting ability proven through, like, uh, Blade Runner 2049 and even, like, <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, I think exceeds what you would expect from, like, a WWE-produced film. Yes. But it felt like... I thought it was like a WWE studio film, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it had the, it had the like, almost like that filtered vibe to it, but uh, yeah, it reminds me of like uh, oh, what what was that Vin Diesel movie, The Babysitter, right? Was uh, that yeah or um, okay. the Pacifier, the Pacifier, the Pacifier. Pacifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah, it, it quite it felt a bit like that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's you know there are comedies they're they're they'll be all right i i probably won't rush to see either of them maybe Suber um will be a second or third weekend kind of thing depending on what else is coming out but um i wanted your insights though on uh on uh, either joker which i'm sure you've seen the trailer even if you hadn't mm-hmm. uh before hellboy but also brightburn brightburn I'm excited, I'm excited for both of those yeah i'll be there for both of them i think regardless um uh, if any, um, my girlfriend will likely drag me to, to, to both at the very least. But Joker, <laughs> I'm I'm interested in. I mean, I do love... Um, you were asking me about directors previously, and I mentioned Pa Thomas Anderson and um, and uh, Spike Jones, both who, who tend to favor, it, it seems as of late, Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. who, if you want to talk about an actor who can tell a story with his face, um, be it intentionally oh. or not, he, he might be kind of the, the definitive example just um yeah and he um you know him and and like lapita nongo um with us they 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 both really i i mean they both kind of have that same skill that i think is incredibly rare and uh on joker it it does seem a little i was talking with a, a few friends the other day i i i'm excited for it i'll be there for it it does seem like I'm, I'm wondering if the, the plot is going to be somewhat linear and I could not help but shake notions of um, taxi driver. I think. Yeah. Most, most I got that same vibe. So I, which is not bad. Um, it's just, I, I, I don't think we necessarily need to see taxi driver with a, you know, a, a, a superhero skin or a DCC. I don't even think it's like really a superhero film. I think it's just a, a way to maybe frame a particular character that people have had trouble. Um, maybe with the exception of, of Nolan and, and the dark Knight, have trouble channeling in a, a, you know, a way that makes him feel, I guess, I guess serious, serious. And it's, I, I think if this film doesn't work, it's probably just, not, it's not going to work. I think maybe. exactly. Um, it, it, yeah. I'm with you. I think the, my my biggest concern going into it is um, the uncertainty behind Todd Phillips being the director. Um, you know, before this, the he he's done nothing but, and I've loved the majority of them. Um, but but you know, buddy comedies uh, with the Hangover, Due Date, and things like that. Um, this is quite the the shift for him direct uh, in a directing uh, style. 
Yeah, yeah, and you have to, I mean, it, it's hard to not, at the end of the day, look at who's at the helm of a film and not concern themselves. Or uh, not, you know, you, you can't, if they have some kind of repertoire, it's hard to not concern yourself with them. I, uh, I that's why I've kind of liked this, like, new wave of, you know, we're, we're kind of in a horror renaissance. We have been for the past few years with, mm-hmm. you know, Babadook, It Follows, more recently Hereditary, things like that. It's, all of those are from directors that haven't really done anything until those. So it's, yeah. it's nice to not have that disposition. Well, yeah, um, and I th- you're, you're absolutely in. right. You know, you, you get this idea that, you know, if they're, they've done it one way, you know, and so I'll backtrack and say that maybe it might be a good thing for him to do uh, essentially what what boils down to a crime drama um, with, you know, a, um, you know, gangster film with a bit of a superhero you know, filter laid on top of it. Yeah. My, my only concern is, again, is actually the, the, the producers and the executive producers influence Scorsese. It's... Um, you know, it's hard to to not feel that he might just be trying to run through the motions to emulate a film of his. I had to mm-hmm. say, and again, specifically, I think Taxi Driver is the is the one that's on the the you know most people are seeing through this film, and I I don't think it's a bad thing. Taxi Driver's uh, a great film. The other thing that kind of brings me solace, regardless of who's who's directing, is. Okay, so Joaquin Phoenix, maybe this doesn't mean much, but but A, I don't think Scorsese would associate his name with something that wouldn't pan out, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not, you, you know, if it's a Joker film, it's probably going to make money. That's, yes. that's kind of needless to say. And so I'm not going to say that one of his influences to, to maybe not direct this film outright and instead, um, you know, associate himself as a, you know, as the executive producer is... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to put like assume that you know people people do do things for money, and uh, that's just a reality of this world. Oh, of so course. you might be doing that there. Um, but even so, I don't think he would put his name on this without having faith in it. Likewise, Joaquin Phoenix. Um, historically, this is at least the the word about town is that he did um, several years ago. I mean, he he was the first pick for uh, ahead of. Uh, um, Oh, what's this? Benedict Cumberbatch. I, I hope I got it. I think mm. I got his name right there. Uh, for Doctor Strange, and he and he turned it down. And hmm. and part of it is because you know most people you know maybe maybe roll their eyes at Joaquin Phoenix or any actor that that like turns down a role because they maybe don't necessarily um, enjoy the script and then become very vocal about it. But like, yeah. um, especially because people kind of have this embedded distrust. I, I think we're over it now. But for a while with Joaquin Phoenix and you know the the mockumentary and the the real life basically pranks i think that led to uh um i'm still here uh-huh was like people kind of have maybe a little bit of a distress for joaquin phoenix so like i remember hearing a wave when he announced that he wasn't going to be dr strange i was disappointed because you know i'm i'm a phoenix fanboy but a lot of people were just like you know very anti uh <laughs> anti that decision i guess but tend to see him take up a, a film like this I don't think it's just because he wants to play the Joker. I think he, I think he probably has some kind of faith in the script itself and how the character is portrayed. Yeah, um, I, I, I would agree. I think that he seems to be somebody who, when he does put his name to something, um, you know, it, it's usually something that has um, some. I mean, it's it's got some some weight in the the you know uh, the film community. Um, the only one I couldn't get behind I is Inherent Vice from him most recently. I. 
I know it was a good movie. I just I I had issues. I didn't like it either, man. I, I just, agree. Like, like I looked at it and like the, I like the actor or like the or the character, but just the overall script, I just I couldn't get behind. It 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 is probably for me. It's probably my and it's not like I mean I I I can't deny the the you know reception it has, which is generally good. Um, it just I don't know. There was some kind of I guess I I don't want to call any film soulless, but you know. <laughs> I guess I will this one. It didn't feel like it had this to have both Phoenix there, but also maybe more importantly, uh, PTA directing mm-hmm. it to not, you know, for it to not work. And maybe because it like, for me, it, it, it immediately followed the master, which I think is probably, I, w- I actually between that and punch struck love. I know a lot of people like there will be blood, but I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to sit on the hill that, you know, I'm pretty, I just think what Punch Drunk Love does, and and as well as The Master, um, as far as meaning within film, I think those are a bit more important than I think. I don't know. Inherent Vice does feel a bit deflated. Yeah. Um, which tells you a lot. I mean, you can have well executed films, and they just be well executed films that are forgotten yeah. uh, very soon. There's, you, I mean, you have to have the formula of filmmaking to make something work, but you also have to have the, again, the heart, and you have to have a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of risk in there too. Yeah, I think you have to take, you know, artistic risks, and and P.T. Anderson is just known for doing that and succeeding. To see him maybe stay at the edge of the precipice without actually diving in, like he has with so many other films, is, um, you know, I don't know. Feel feels like we're being mis. Feels like we're being kind of uh, uh, I don't know, scammed a little, <laughs> a little bit. It's, I don't want to say that because I don't, I'm, I don't, I, you know, I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that, but it, it, it did feel like, I don't know. I, I, I'm curious what you think. It does feel like there's something missing from it. Yeah, I just, I could never get behind it. I, yeah. I watched it and it was one of those that I remember, um, I wasn't able to see in theaters. So once it, once it came around, I was first to grab it, you know, I was like, oh, let's check this out. And yeah. I just was like, that's what I waited for. I was like, oh, okay. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't awful, but it just wasn't. I, I, the reception, the critical reception for it was so positive that I just, I guess I expected a different type of movie. Um, you know, I, I expected something, like you said, a little bit more depth or meaning behind it rather than just, you know, maybe a, a well done, you know, like you said, character portrayal. I thought that uh, him playing Doc was really well done, but I just, outside of that, I just, I was, I wasn't hooked. Yeah. And it's not like, uh, I, maybe it's just, uh, I think part of me is I, I just like put it behind like the master instead of have a character like Freddie Quell. Which is just, and even as well as Lancaster Dodd with, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman there, mm-hmm. um, to have those two characters at odds in such an, you know, insurmountable conflict and then for it to, to move into a film that doesn't really concern itself with, with at least that kind of antagonism, it, it felt weird. I also wonder if, like, maybe because it's a, uh, that's not to say he hasn't, I think he did pull from, I mean, the master technically is inspired by. Uh, Ron Hubbard, but I know Inherent Vice was based off of a novel. I think it was uh, PTA's first like adaptation or one of his only adaptations. Okay. Maybe that I'm wondering if maybe maybe his maybe he felt in adapting something he he needed to kind of stick to it, so to speak, very closely. And I think that can kind of hurt. Um, adaptation is a very weird, you know, bizarre beast. Probably illustrated most. You know, uh, notably in like uh, uh, Spike Jones's adaptation, appropriately titled. Oh, yeah. Um, it's yeah, it was a great film, by the way. But like, it's it's a weird beast, and you know, you can't 
you, you have to remove some of these sources agency to create something that's appropriate for film. And maybe mm-hmm. that's where he, he maybe it fumbled a little bit for me, but you know, I don't know. All right. I think we uh, beat around the bush a bit uh, there, and we'll, we're, <laughs> that's all right. You know, that's that's what I enjoy having new people on. We get to talk some movies and um, you know get some different uh, perspectives on some things. So uh, we are here to talk some Hellboy. Before we get jump into that, though, um, do have some for the listeners out there. We got some exciting news. So on Sunday, April twenty eighth at five p.m., I will be co-hosting a drive-in Mike Talks Movies crossover episode on and Avengers Endgame. Uh, the show is going to be live starting at 5 p.m. found on Spreaker. You'll find a live stream uh, that will be coming to you. That We'll put it out on Twitter. We'll put it on Facebook. You'll be able to to find it from many different ways. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, drive-in regulars Aaron Brewer and Ben Norsworthy as we nerd out on the end of the Infinity Saga. So um, you'll want to be somewhere where you can listen to that. But if you can't, don't worry. We will record it, and it will be released later that week. Also, next week, Mike and I will be on the live with Don Smith on Tuesday night to promote the live show, and it's always a good time we get, are able to to hang out with Don, uh, also an Eventide show, so uh, so check those out. Um, but again, Daniel Bokemper is here today talking about Hellboy, um, so you know, let's throw our spoiler-free summary down and let's get to it. Um, if you saw any of the the trailers, you get the, the vibe of Hellboy, but it is based on the graphic novels by Mike uh, Mignola. Mignola. Mignola, haha, I'm going to say that right. Uh, Hellboy caught between the worlds of the supernatural and the human battles an ancient sorceress bent on revenge. Outside of that, it's an action movie. There's not a whole lot of spoiler-free discussion that can be had of it. Um, so we'll go ahead and take a quick little break. And uh, when we come on the other side, we're going to get to the specifics. We'll break it down. We'll see what we thought about it, what Daniel thought about it. I've heard a little bit about what he thinks about it. You guys are going to want to stick around. Um, and we will be right back. Want to know where to find the best hidden musical gems on the internet? Mike Shea and Robert Yetter have got you covered. Tune in Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. for the latest episode of Track Record. Brought to you by Eventide Entertainment. Alright, so we are back from our little break here. At this point in time, you cannot be mad at us if you are still listening and you haven't seen the movie and we throw some spoilers down because we are spoiler, uh, spoiler, well, we are free from the spoiler free uh, status. So first and foremost, Daniel, what did you think of Hellboy? Um, What were your initial thoughts uh, walking out when you saw it? So two things. First of all, I saw it at 1030 a.m. on Sunday morning. Oof. A lot of, lot, well, that's not so bad. I kind of like watching movies in the morning a little bit, but like, at least for critiquing them, weird thing. There were so many, like, people above the age of 50 in my showing. I did not anticipate. <laughs> Don't know why. Uh, maybe, maybe it is to your credit. So this, so this film kind of marks the, basically the 25th anniversary of Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Um, to my understanding, it was announced at, um, you know, uh, uh, I think the New York Comic Con or something, a little bit WonderCon, maybe a little bit earlier um, this year in late uh, 2018. Um, so maybe that's why. Maybe there is a, a nostalgia that that sits there. Um, additionally, I'm surprised so many older people showed up for a film that really probably isn't worth their time, and I it, it wasn't worth mine, and and I don't. Like, it's weird, man, because it's it's like a really interesting study in, like, what makes a film bad, I guess. Because it's pretty... 
I don't know. Maybe you could disagree with that. I don't really know what your take is on it, but I thought it was, that was pretty bad. Um, needless to say. Um, but, but it's how it's bad. And I think what's maybe more interesting is how it could go wrong and how did, you know, where, um, where Neil Marshall stumbles, how did Guillermo del Toro succeed with, you know, prior to, uh, I mean, the second Hellboy film, the Gold Darby came out two years, I think, before Iron Man mm-hmm. came out itself. So even before we started the the MCU craze formally, um, you know, Hellboy managed to pull off a, you know, it wasn't like a, a crazy good film, but it has a significant, I mean, it, it actually, yeah, I think it is, but it's it wasn't a popular film, I should say. No, at the time, it, it was not very popular. And in comparison to the uh, the reception of the first one, it did fairly poorly. But when you look back at it now, you realize, hey, it was actually not that bad of a movie. It's it's got yeah. a good cast. It's a good uh, good script. Um, I thought I liked it when it was done. But this was also, I think, I was in high school and I liked everything I watched. So um, yeah. I hadn't really really looked at it. But now I look back at it and I'm like, all right, yeah, this is this is actually a pretty good movie. It holds up. It holds up surprisingly well. Um, I'm saying that, and I haven't watched it in like three years. I chose not to watch del toro's hellboy because i feel like it would have even if this film was okay it would have probably still tainted or weighted my my uh my perception of it a little bit uh just from like my you know just from just raw expectation yeah um and so i try to sh- i try to like kind of keep a, a you know a bit of a, a palate cleanser um <laughs> so to speak by intentionally not watching something or revisiting something um in anticipation of another film you know be it a sequel or something like that yeah. and um, I, I don't know. Well, what did you think of it, Aaron? Just like, as I, a... well, so overall, I agree with you. I, I was not okay. as thrilled with it as I had hoped. Um, I did enjoy David Harbour's performance. I thought that he, what he did, um, in, in trying, like you said, trying not to compare it to, to Ron Perlman. Um, yeah. I, I thought that what it did, when you look at what the character is and the, the, you know, the attitude and the portrayal, I liked it. I thought he was fun. Um, but that's kind of where it stopped for me. I thought that yeah. it was a, a bit, I mean, for for a big budget film, I just wasn't all that impressed. Um, I mean, you know, I I really just didn't see even for a movie like Hellboy, I didn't know why it had to be as gory as it was. I felt like it just it hung its hat on, hey, we're going to be gory and we're going to earn that R rating. Well, um, it just I was like, well, give me some storyline. I didn't buy the car- the uh, the villain really at all um, because it felt a little rushed and I don't know. The yeah, it was wasn't there. it was super eclectic. There were a lot of moments that were kind of completely separate from the film that did feel like they were just to be kind of these like gory, um, you know, just like a splatterhouse moment that that isn't. And it was also usually it was done through like kind of CGI that looked not great, um, like it was a little yeah. a little outdated. And that's actually doesn't mean the film is that I'm sure there were tons of artists who were putting their their time and effort into these films. It's kind of like the effect I when I was watching Captain Marvel, which I, I I've. Maybe maybe goes without saying. I like better than this film, but like, it's weird. Like, there's some like Marvel films that, despite having three hundred million dollar budgets, there's this, and I can't think of the phenomenon. There is a good piece or feature written on on this phenomenon where they like the more expensive a film CGI budget gets, it actually starts to look a little worse. Like it, it's I don't know what it is. I don't know what's the cause for it. Um, I think it has less to do with, you know, the amount of pixels or rendering or whatever, uh, you know, technical aspect or technical procedure of, of what makes a, a, you know, a movie come to life is, but more so our own kind of 
perception. I think they are our own way. We, we, we view films like that. When we see something that's synthetic, mm-hmm. how we begin to, again, maybe lose trust in it or maybe lose, uh, maybe intrigue or interest. But I, uh, it, it's, it's weird. I think one thing that kind of just maybe perturbed me is what, what you were saying exactly, Aaron, when a film is like, we're going to earn our, our rating <laughs> that maybe, I think the last film, because you know, Deadpool, for example. Yeah. Before Deadpool came out, I think the highest grossing rated R film was The Passion of the Christ. And yeah. why? Well, because it's because people made up, you know, I, I mean, exactly as Gibson intended. It was meant for it to be like a spiritual outing or a religious experience for a yep. lot of people. And hence why it did so well. Um, but but then it was Deadpool was after that. And Deadpool only had the benefit of it, was, it being a comic book movie. I think Deadpool was the last one that could really succeed. And, and even then, I don't think Deadpool wasn't nearly as like gory as this movie it just had you know moments that warranted a rate you know maybe they they dropped a few more f-bombs than than other films but like um while there was a little bit of you know some some light gore or something like that it wasn't it wasn't like this and i think like i think that's the last film a to be able to work because i if i remember correctly that was a part of the marketing campaign was that they were not going to cut down deadpool to meet pg-13 standards it was going to be r i think that was just by coincidence i don't know if that was a deliberate marketing i, I mean i'm sure it was you know knowing you have the, to feel it, they had something to do with it yeah yeah but like it wasn't um you know it wasn't the reason the film succeeded and yes. and now now that we're in a post you know deadpool 2 logan horror films that are coming out that are other rated r films that are coming out that are succeeding really well um in this landscape, you can't really push a film and say like, oh, well, we, we were able to make this IP R so it can be just as violent and just as gratuitous as maybe some of the source material is really setting yourself up for failure um, in that instance. I mean, there it really lacked like just from like trailers and things like that. It did seem like it was just trying to be this kind of big, dumb movie, which is fine. Um, there's a lot of good big dumb movies Mm -hmm. but my theory is if you're going to make a big dumb movie you better work to make the biggest dumbest fucking movie you can exactly anything short of that is 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 going to be a failure and i think that's what we got here and and like you were mentioning with the antagonist and um things like that i think the character was fine um i think um you know i think david harbour channels it well i actually feel a little bad for him because it doesn't matter how, how you know honestly and maybe this is why we were talking about Inherent Vice a few moments ago. Why, for us, it didn't even work, even with Joaquin Phoenix at this lead role, which for me, like, that that like checks a default box. Usually, it's hard for me not to love a film with him at the helm, but that, mm-hmm. it, that it just goes to, you know, probably the old saying, the last thing to go wrong with a film is it's, it's acting, and that's true. I, th- I think David Harbour, if he even did a, a far better job than this, it wasn't going to... You know, it wasn't going to, to salvage this film because you can't get around poor writing. It's just not, you know, it's no performer is going to to, to beat that. So is that, so um, you think, I mean, I was, my next question was to where did it go wrong? You think it was just the, I mean, not just, but you think it started with the script? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think it all roots back to the script because, and that, and that's the, the thing is the script is the most like it's, it's, <laughs> this is going to be a really bad analogy, but there was a, uh, um, I listened to uh, back when I was in college, there was this theorist who who he studied really heavily, like 
basically the 9-11 bombings. I'm taking mm-hmm. a dark turn. Sorry if I, I don't mean to trigger any of your viewers. But the point being, he was looking at like how um, the the like like terrorism is the you know, it's it's a, a method of violence that has the lowest cost yet but can yield the most like economic devastation or the most mm-hmm. economic gain. Yeah. And I and I think about that as a script and that sounds bad because I, I want as somebody who'd who'd like to develop scripts inevitably, I don't want to be a I guess I just made my compare myself to a terrorist. Maybe <laughs> maybe maybe walk that one back a little bit. But okay. either way the break it down <laughs> with a theory at least. Yeah, but but logically the script is probably going to be in a lot of ways, it'll have the limited, mo- the most limited amount of resources for a film, but it's going to give you the, mm-hmm. if it works, if it's good, it should give you the most like exponential boon you yeah. can expect. And, and that's what I mean by this. So like what went wrong with it specifically in the film, it felt very eclectic. I felt like they were trying to get a kind of a scope of, you know, they were trying to build the character and the idea of Hellboy, but not in a very fluid way. Um, yeah. So... I think maybe they went a little bit too far with the engagements. He happens the, the 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 battles you see in the film. There's so many of them separately that it does kind of, in a way, it feels like a bit of a like almost like a not in a good way, but like an anthology film. Yeah, and, it, there and, were so many different cutscenes. I remember at one point when you've got them going down to find, um, well, they're they're following Mer- or they're going down to find Merlin all of a sudden, and you're like. Whoa, hold on. How do we get there? Uh, you know, there's there's all yeah. these like missed points, and I'm okay like, every now and then if you don't get a hundred percent of the the travel time no. and those kinds. But it just felt like that that was one example of many where I felt that there were pieces from the script that had to have been cut in the final, or I hope they were cut in the final uh, the final edition of the film because they they're just if the writing had just uh, assumed that the the viewers would follow along, you're making some big jumps there. Well, it was stuttering, and I also don't know why they had so many locale jumps. It started to not make sense to me. When you have, like, every, like, it felt like every five to ten minutes, they would have, you know, you know, a big, uh, uh, what is it, flyover shot of some mm-hmm. locale, and then in big, bold letters, where it was, like London, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tijuana, um, somewhere else, hell, I guess, I don't I know, whatever. It was like, it, it just felt necessary and it wasted a lot of time and that's what i feel like there was a lot going on the film was kind of long for what it was two hours which Mm -hmm. about average length for a film i was surprised to see that runtime going in yeah two hours for hellboy (laughs) right and it felt long and it also felt like it had what made it feel longer um is that it had so much wasted motion and part of that is the editing choices i think with those locale changes and 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 you know, doing those those instances, but also just having a lot of moments that just felt like they ran so long. Again, they wanted to fit a bunch of different moving pieces. It almost felt like they adapted like a comic, almost verbatim, but in a comic that would have taken take people like maybe three to four hours to read. They just decided to do it as close to frame by frame as they could within the film. And I don't know. I have no idea if this is actually derived from a, a specific, I assume it is, but I, yeah, I don't so know. If I did a little bit of research cause I, yeah. I, I am a comic book guy, but I, I had never read outside of a couple of spot issues of Hellboy. I've never mm-hmm. really you know followed along. This is, this is, um, a, a based off of a, a run called the wild hunt, um, which they said is way, way more. This film is more close, closely tied to the comics. It's trying to not necessarily, 
100% recreate, but really be inspired by and tell the story of a, of a particular comic run versus what Del Toro did where he took the took the character and wrote his own story. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, Del Toro was speaking with um, uh, Mignola for months, years ahead of the the actual filming of uh, his film, whereas Neil Marshall ve- didn't really talk to Mignola once or twice. It, it he'd really never got in touch with him, um, which I think that that shows, especially if you're going to base it so much off of a particular comic and not just the character. Um, you really need the the comic creator to have a, a larger say, or at least in you know uh, influence over the view is to say, hey, is this going to hold up to the reality of this comic? Um, you know, is this going to end up being a recreation? And is this going to, you know, be what the, the character is supposed to be? Now, on the other hand, David Harbour was reaching out to Mignola often. They had, you know, tons of conversations. So for me, the t- that says, well, you know, the one thing I liked the most out of this was the portrayal from Harbour. It's because he, he went to the content source. He went to the creator and he said, all right, you know, what do I got to do? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Marshall didn't either, it was a choice by him or just an oversight. But I think that, uh, if we would have had a little bit more say from Mignola in this one, like we did in the other two, maybe it would have been able to be saved. Yeah. And I, I, I'm kind of curious on your take on this. I think it goes both ways. I'm not, I'm not, what I'm about to lay down is not a hill I'm going to die on, but <laughs> I, so it's interesting with the idea of adaptation, um, again, which is what this film really delves deep into and where it fails heavily and what and what you're saying is um you know correct me if i'm wrong the because um you know neil marshall was not concerned with the source material nor the creator not not at least not the the creator's thoughts i think or or you know maybe on a more personal level what they felt hellboy embodied mm-hmm. the film kind of felt a little clinical and maybe felt a little distant in that way um, and maybe more along the line, what I mentioned earlier, running through the motions, it kind of, it didn't, it didn't feel like it or wasted motion. Maybe mm-hmm. that was, a, it almost felt, it felt bloated, right? Yeah. Kind of yeah, like, the especially pig, since yeah. it was trying to be an adaptation, you know, as opposed to Del Toro, you know, he's not necessarily trying to adapt a particular story. So that's why it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, they don't need the, the creator as much, but surprisingly he did reach out to him. more. He did. Yeah. And that instance, I also wonder if it may have been for an artistic influence just because of knowing how involved del toro is in creating very true his characters um not to say it i mean i mean and secondly those those are the the things you see on the outside of his characters do correlate with with what makes them enticing and what we see internally mm-hmm. um with a film again you can't have wasted motion in a film so if a character appears a certain way even if it's to be a red herring it serves a purpose mm-hmm. which everything usually does usually an overt purpose in del toro's films absolutely um whereas this where i think of like there's a moment in this film near the end where um you know um i a word spoiler free season that's right we are uh, we're, we're pro spoiler here we go um hellboy uh finding out that he is the distant ancestor to king arthur as well as a demon lord um <laughs> removes excalibur i know this is weird i guess people don't know about this film they're gonna wonder where where the hell does excalibur come into play but um e- either way excalibur he gets excalibur <laughs> and uh he turns into the the demon he always thought he might be and uh and all of, likewise all of these like hell spawns start uh spawning out of the 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 cracks to hell in london 
and they like kill people kind of without you know without uh without mercy mm-hmm. and so they're showing like these characters i think we're supposed to look like del toro's characters a little bit like i couldn't help but feel like especially the one there's like one that's like giant and it's walking through like a bay or a harbor and it's like spreading oh, that- its arms out and it it like walks through a, a giant it walk it, it, it uh walks through london bridge it, got, yeah. it looked like something straight out of pan's labyrinth he was trying to make it yeah it, well and yeah it, without the without the you know the care to detail yeah. um it, it looked like yeah it did look like something out of uh pan's labyrinth and i that wasn't without coincidence they wanted to to use those for you know to get people to to feel like this is somehow uh distantly related to to Mm -hmm. del toro's work and it it's obviously not but it it, um you know i i wonder about that it's it's because that's when you see like the del toro aesthetic without real purpose like just to look kind of creepy and and that made it it fell on deaf eyes and ears i guess and that blind eyes and deaf ears in that instance and um i wonder about that too and i am curious about your thoughts so i was going to mention so earlier i mentioned alex garland being kind of a recent director that i've felt very strongly about when he (laughs) adaptation kind of i guess as del toro as it relates to his hellboy films um and his you know his uh uh, contemplation that he put in front of these films it's weird because garland didn't put you know he he read for Annihilation, he read Jeff Vandermeer's novel once, like when it came out a really <laughs> long time ago. And then kind of after he you know, realized he could make this film, he decided he wanted to adapt it. He never read Annihilation again to adapt it. He just it was his me- he, he calls it an adaptation of his memory of a <laughs> novel. I don't even know if he really involved Vandermeer for more than just the, you know, the boilerplate um, contractual stuff and royalties. Yeah. But like. It it you know, but that film is great. Oh and the, yeah, and the novel stands. I would, I, I would never too. have known it, and I I never I have not read the novels, but mm-hmm. based on what I read about the storyline, it was pretty true to like oh like this is it's not like a, a scene for scene from the book, but it, it felt like okay yeah he did a pretty good job of adapting this into an original screenplay, um you know well original in the sense that it was original uh, original story, um so yeah I, I didn't know that that's interesting. He, he matches it matches tonally, and that's really important. And I think that's what Del Toro, despite not adapting a specific piece of Hellboy, he matched the tone. And I think what this film makes us understand, and maybe what they missed with the the you know their marketing campaign when they were pushing the rated R rating and the and the kind of the goriness, is people I don't think are attracted to Hellboy because it has demons and, and crazy monsters that you know and a lot of gore. Um, I think what Del Toro realized and what, because the reason he was able to pull off a good Hellboy um, rendition at the, you know, PG 13 for both across both his films is because it, it, he matched it tonally what themes it was looking for because Hellboy again, isn't about demon slaying, although it kind of is, I guess on the surface level, it's about adolescence in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's about a character that's, you know, it's funny to be portrayed by an adult, be it, you know, again, I think in almost interchangeably, Ron Perlman or um, uh, David Harbour, it, it, you know, it, it's funny to have this character that is for all intents and purposes an adult. He's the eldest adult. He's basically in like an elder god thing. But to be kind of a teenager and still be subjected to the same angst and the same desires and and to, to, to you know, suffer those. It's 
I think that's why Hellboy works as a narrative. I think that's why it's persisted um, as a, you know, which is not something too different than a lot of superhero narratives. It's just the, um, but, but for whatever reason, it doesn't work here because I think they concern themselves less with that. They, they were more concerned with jumping setting, introducing as many different monsters as you could. It was basically a sideshow and mm-hmm. putting Hellboy and having him give the quips and the, you know, have the drinking problem and things like that. Um, I think the only like really appropriate portions of this film and that that work well is really kind of the first 10 minutes, the the prologue a little bit where Hellboy is forced to kill one of his friends who's turned into a vampire, one of his colleagues. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the only bit of this film that felt like it worked because it, it was a, you know, somewhat of a, a brief and it wasn't very well, but it was kind of an examination of grief that I think how a teenager might, um, like a teenager who's also, you know, can really do whatever they want, um, yeah. would I, handle it. And, and, and that's where I think the film maybe works and that's where it stops working, unfortunately. But I, I agree that I think, I mean, I, I did enjoy that opener because, you know, we hadn't gotten into, um, any of the the major connections. So it was almost like a, a short film in a way. Right. And I think that looking at it by itself, um, you know, you establish conflict and you establish enough of this background um, that we never really go into, um, which, you know, I, I guess is okay. But as far as to, you know, his partner and, you know, why he liked his partner so much other than the fact that they drank together, um, I think there was more to it in his in the reaction to what happened after he died that you can understand, you can understand the emotion, you can understand the uh, the teenager aspect of it. If it's he doesn't get his way, but it's it's not like a pouting in the corner. It's his way was getting his buddy back, and he didn't get his buddy back, so now he's gonna go drink away his sorrows. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's. I thought it was it was well done, and then he gets pulled back to uh, to headquarters, and and you know things kind of shifted. Yeah, then it becomes like a never-ending like Hellboy vignette, like Hellboy-inspired vignettes, and yeah. that doesn't work for this film. And and again, that's the thing. I think it's just it, you really insult your audience. It was the reason I didn't particularly like um, Glass. Ultimately, M Night Shyamalan's film. Yeah, that um, one fell short. I, I enjoyed it at times, and I liked a lot of the symbolism, um, you know, color yeah. symbolism and whatnot, and imagery, but. Man, there. I, I was hoping for more out of that that uh, that movie. Well, here I, I think, and I think um, you know, I do think Glass is probably better than this one. But yes, um, it, it. I guess maybe Neil Marshall and M Night Shyamalan shared this. In this case, they don't trust their audience, so it's like, <laughs> I guess we're talking about you know we already brought up wrestling once. Um, I, I'm a fan of wrestling. I know Aaron is a fan of wrestling. Yes. Um, there's a famous quote. I guess you could attribute this to like Apple in their kind of philosophy, but I'm going to quote Vince McMahon because it's funnier. <laughs> you don't know what you want. I'm going to tell you what you want and you'll want it. And that's the, and that's kind of what this fills in the, and in that instance, it's a, it's a jest because, you know, people boo him and he's portraying a, a villain <laughs> in that instance. And, and like, but these are like, you know, what if he, wasn't I get and which maybe he's not and maybe that's why we we could look at like maybe a company like Apple yeah who seems to work though because in a lot of ways they they do kind of at least back in the day they did show us things that we didn't realize we wanted or needed and and then it ended up being something that was you know very successful and um it's it's the case here I think Neil Marshall was like I think I guess he thought a bunch of 
dumb stoners or something were going to be the ones who were in it. Just, you know, he's not wrong. It's probably part of the um, yeah. appeal. But, like, um, you know, he didn't trust his audience to to be enticed by something that was a little more subtle, to be a little less pounding your your head and and not just being, you know, again, just being like these weird Hellboy quips, these Hellboyisms. It's yeah. it's like a collection of Hellboyisms. Yeah. Where and then, and that's where I feel bad for David Harbor. Even one other thing, just on like a raw technical level, um, as, as it relates to writing, there's moments where I, I do not think this script was proofread. Um, oh, I don't I, mean I for agree. just yeah, I don't mean for typos. I just mean there are moments where dialogue that happened literally seconds before is overwritten by subsequent dialogue. And, and and it's like it they do not realize that it happened and like there's one moment there's probably several and Aaron if you if you can think of any off the top of your head um pull them out but like the one I think of is uh it's like he meets the Baba Yaga the 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 witch that uh-huh. lives in the the walking house and they're they're talking about you know they make a deal that basically if she tells him where the 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 witch the whoever the villain is i i forget the, uh, like the, the blood queen the blood Nim- queen nimue nimue yeah the blood queen she um she tells him where he can find her um provided he gives you know the babiaga one of his one of his eyes and she you know she uh um she agrees and he says like in that instance he says after i'm done i'll give you my eye and then she agrees to it she's like oh okay and then, like, they get into a conflict, um, and then she's like, I, I want my eye now. And and then he says, like, well, we didn't specify a time. And I'm like, motherfucker, you did. Yeah. Like, 25 seconds ago. Yeah. And it, it didn't, it didn't, uh, I don't know. It, 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 I, I'm pretty sure they meant to omit him actually saying... You know, after I finished everything, well, it would make was, more sense yeah. that way. Is that, that it? Is, yeah, you know, and then suddenly I'll the give conflict. you my eye, and then no, I'm not going to. You know, we the there's the the fine print that wasn't written. You know, that kind of a thing. But yeah, yes, no, I, yeah, I, I agree. There were there mm-hmm. were a lot of those elements to me. Um, one particular that jumps out to me was um, oh, was the uh, the character um, Alice? Was it um, the medium? The yeah. medium where it's we find out kind of after we find out that she has powers um, and like, okay, she was, she was taken away uh, by fairies. She comes back. And then when she comes back, she has powers. We get that backstory after finding out that she already has powers. But the problem is, is it's the, it's almost like when we find out that the fairies gave her powers, that's supposed to be the first time we know that she has powers. Yeah. And so I was confused, you know, there were a couple times where like, okay, but we already know she can speak to the dead. She's having conversations with them, you know, in mid scene. So it was like, again, it was, it was like they were trying to sell a reveal through some backstory of, oh, she was taken by fairies. Something weird happened when she was gone. She came back with powers like, oh, okay. So Alice has powers, but we already knew it. And so, yeah, it's just kind of that like subtle, like you said, proofreading where maybe the editing could have been done a little crisper i don't know it it yeah it's it, so it's like weird it's like two different things are happening it either feels like this film was written over like a weekend um which is like uh uh the hills have eyes too that was uh the 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 remake sequel or whatever uh-huh um that was still written by uh is it west craven who did the hills have eyes i'm trying I to believe think so yeah 
Yeah. He wrote it. It was like one of his worst films, but he admits he wrote it, wrote it in like a, a 48 hour period. Um, the same thing with the film. Uh, there's another action movie. Ninja Assassin, I think, was a, another one. Heard that of it. Was, I hadn't seen it. But yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Dumb action movie. I mean, it, it you know, it's got its ninjas and it's got its uh, not ninjas, but um, it's like <laughs> it's. Uh, it was also written in a very short period of time. And for whatever reason, it's action films kind of tend to, to fall into this bucket, I think. Yeah. Um, and, but also like I, while you were speaking, I was like, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was written like separately or they're pulling from other bits of adaptation, like, and it, it was kind of just conjoined into this one monster. Well, I do um, know that in, when, in my research of looking up about, um, you know, the, uh, Mignola's in, involvement, he did say that. Um, he was part of one of the original rights, uh, you know, the, the scripts, but it had been passed on so many different times that he doesn't even remember what was his and what wasn't his anymore because it seems like, you know, it could have been the guy who ultimately had it um, by the end. He really couldn't even give you much information there. So, um, it, you know, Andrew Cosby, who ultimately finished the, the screenplay, he had it at the end after so many other people did. And by at that point, you know, I, I understand in the film you know business that there are multiple drafts that go through. But when you get so many different people's hands on a draft and you don't completely rewrite it and you pull from it, you're going to get a little bit of continuity error, you know, and that eventually yeah. is going to catch up to you. Too many cooks will spoil the broth. Exactly. I, <laughs> but um, yeah, I get I, that's what it kind of feels like more so. I don't think it was written over a brief period of time because if i think it was written over a brief period of time that might yield just a little bit more cohesion and to some extent at least as it relates to this locale jumping and and you know all this other stuff i it does feel like it's something that a lot of people wrote a lot of different things and none of them particularly well and then it's just like let's smack them together and and do it i which is makes me wonder um you know aaron like i think this film could have succeeded in two in two modes a i think as is if they just released it on like netflix which i don't know why they didn't because that i mean david to my knowledge that's where david harbour is most famous he's most famous for stranger things right yeah like that's, i mean that's okay. that's he's been in other things but that's where that's i mean i would say that's why he got this role yeah if like why didn't and i i don't know the studio related to make it. I don't, you know, I, I do not know the ins and outs, so I'm not going to say it made sense. It would make more sense to release it on Netflix. Maybe logistically it wouldn't, um, depending on the circumstance, but I feel like that would have been a better platform. I feel like this film as is would have been better received just as a streaming film. I think, I, I, I think it may have worked there. Um, yeah. but I think it would have just as a whole worked as better as like a, a Hellboy anthology film, I think would have been kind of cool. Like, I think if it was just, like, four separate Hellboy stories, like, I I think it would have been, I think as an anthology film, it probably would have set better with people. And it definitely wouldn't feel as eclectic because anthology films are a bit eclectic by nature. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it maybe would have worked better. Instead, we got what feels kind of like an anthology film, but there is a, a thread that persists through through all of it. Um, and you never get too much, no one narrative because it does just from what you're telling me, um, based on your research, it sounds like it kind of, I think there's a little bit of stories coming from a few different or a few different stories coming from a few different people that mm -hmm. led to making this film. 
um to have none of those you know i, I think they it would have been better if they were just disjointed <laughs> as would be with an yeah. anthology film as opposed to to selling it as a you know a single narrative yeah um Curiosity, uh, we haven't talked about uh, the particular... Well, we, we mentioned Miljovic's uh, Nimue, um, but we did have another side character as one of the villains, um, Baba Yaga, of course, but talking about... Um, uh, oh, of course, I, as soon as I pull it up, I can't think of his name. Oh, uh, Stephen Graham's uh, Grugach, I can't, I, the pig man. Um, can't remember the, the pronunciation. What were your thoughts on, on that character? Because it felt... For for how hard they were trying to make it CGI, it almost felt like he was he was really given an animatronic vibe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, like I I love Steve. I loved his, the the character uh, or the no the character voice. I like. I thought that uh, Graham yeah. did a really good job of like, hey, this is the character, and I thought it was acted well. Yeah. Where do you think? I mean, like, how? What did you think of the character? I mean, we, like you said, we had it. It probably could have been done better as an anthology because we had four or five different villains um, throughout the film. Um, you know, what? What are your thoughts on him? Because we didn't mention him, so I didn't want to forget. Yeah, he 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 would have had a lot more legs, I think, in a separate story. The other thing was the one like it seemed like there was a very there was a striking beacon. Um, you know, the, and, and and I, I will agree, first of all, with you, Aaron. I think he was voiced, you know, he was how I thought a giant pig monster would sound, <laughs> which is like, uh, um, and it kind of, I guess it had a little, and, and yeah, I, I assume the character was like CG, but I think maybe loosely, I think there was maybe a big costume being worn. He, he reminded me of the Dark Crystal a little bit, like, or maybe, maybe less the Dark Crystal. Yeah, I think that, but like. There's like a, you know, he was more Bebop and Rocksteady than Bebop and Rocksteady were in that like recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I was half expecting him to be voiced by Seamus because it almost felt like it. Yeah, that's what I. I mean, that's what the character looked like to me, and I, uh, I'm glad they didn't because I, I did like how he was voiced. Um, unfortunately, it was weird. Like I felt like that character was a bit shafted to some extent because he, you know, because okay, so he's the changeling that got found out and he could have and part of his angst is he could have been the you know he could have lived his life as a human he yeah. could have lived his life as alice so that's a point alice was the the child he replaced briefly before hellboy you know figured out it was him so why why did he not have any interaction with why did that character not have interaction with alice throughout that film wouldn't you think that would be like a big source of conflict is yeah, I, I have no idea why and they once. never interacted no at not all once. not that i remember and like that's weird like that seems like it has a little bit of gravity that seems like it has you know of the many missed opportunities that seems like to be to me the one that's like kind of the most missed and i i don't know it's weird to me because that just seems inherent like i don't even know how you fuck that up and like it 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 just it's weird like why did they not decide to intertwine those two um it but i i mean i like him he's the character was kind of well i, I don't like him in that they didn't take advantage of an opportunity that could have at least helped develop this character and instead they have you know i know that like a fight with a bunch of giants or something else that wasted time like a lot of things yeah, in this and, movie and, but you know that was one of those things that it's it 
I felt like the the whole Giants scene was it could have I mean it felt rushed. I felt like that could have been you know a major point of the film because you know that's actually one of the main elements of the comic is it's called the Wild Hunt. It's you know based off of this element. I mm-hmm. I think you know I didn't notice this, but I I heard some some of these uh, critiques about how the the sky was actually not rendered correctly in that they place so much focus on the the giants and the action sequences that they actually either just didn't have time or the money to you know finish up the rest of the scene weird so that's I, interesting i never huh. i didn't catch it i mean my eyes i was i wasn't like paying it. attention to yeah i wasn't looking for things like that but um that's kind of interesting yeah. um you know it, it, it's weird but yeah it did seem like that was kind of a Again, one of the many just scenes that kind of went on too long and didn't really, you know, to what purpose it would it would it serve other than the, you know, I don't know. Hellboy can can overcome odds. Yeah, I don't I don't think we needed that to, you know, reinforce it. But man, I I don't know. I I just it does feel like I think that's what's most disappointing is a it. You know, we have this expectation of what Hellboy can be. Um and B, it's it just has so many like missed opportunities. It, it just feels like every time they could have had something interesting, it, it they just decided against it. And you yeah. can't blame that on your. But first of all, the film cost fifty million dollars to make. Yeah, that's a lot. That's that's a decent chunk of change for what it is. And secondly, that doesn't matter. Like you, you can't attribute. You know, bad CGI isn't the reason this movie fails. It's not the reason any any movie truly fails. Like there there isn't a movie. I, I I'm say this knowing that there's a lot of bad CGI in the world. There's not a single movie I know that's like a, a film that requires, you know, CGI that is bad because the CGI looks a little wonky. Maybe with the exception of Polar Express, that film is creepy. But <laughs> um, well, I mean, I look at the original. Uh, well, not the original, but I guess the original Spider Man, Tobey Maguire. That CGI yeah. is is really bad, um, mm-hmm. but that movie holds up even to this day. Most people would say right. well, even two was pretty horrible. But you look at it and you're like, oh, they, you know, Spider Man two and and Alfred Molina as as Doc Ock. A lot of people love that movie still. I you know I, I I still hold it up pretty high in regards myself. So yeah, me too. You know, but the CGI is really really rough. Yeah. It, you know, it's among the worst. Um, you know, and and in, uh, granted, a bit of that is the sign of the times. Most of that actually is, you know, that was early CGI for where we were. But you know, you're correct. It, a CGI uh, element is not going to make or break your film. It may make it, you know, from an A A movie to a B movie as far as your grading. But it's it's not mm-hmm. going to take it. You know, it's not going to fail it simply because people just may say, "Well, it took me out a little bit," but at least you know there were other plenty of redeeming qualities. Yeah, and that 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 I think is somewhat of a biggest like what what a lot of you know there's a general pool of thought I think being formed around this film that you know they they just wanted to have it mean made and they didn't have the money to make it good like there's no amount of money that would have fixed the 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 most cost effective cheapest aspect of a film which is the just the script itself and yeah it you know there there's no amount of money you could have thrown at this with the script as is that would have mel- you know wouldn't have remedied that um, well, it's funny funny you mentioned so yeah the budget was 50 million currently as of right now it has made back less than half of that 
that's not going to get you a sequel. No, wasn't there a yeah? There was. A, I was thinking about that. I actually jotted this down when I was watching it. When they're like, I, I wrote. So there's a. I wrote a quote because they uh, they're talking about how to defeat um, the Blood Queen, mm-hmm. and they're like, we uh, you know you got to separate her head and completely you know I don't know do something to to ensure that she doesn't come back, and like Alice the medium. Uh, mentioned so she doesn't come back for the sequel and like i wrote there like right next in my margin i'm like i hope none of you come back for any (laughs) sequel i like it it, and that i don't you know i don't know i didn't i didn't really care for that character so much i mean david harbour didn't really connect no it didn't it didn't fit because she felt like a character that could have been interesting like hey that's a lot of baggage you were taken by fairies as a kid you could have been Something different. Hey, you've had this relationship with the paranormal your entire life, which worked well with the the pyrokinetic character in yes. Toros. Right? Like that character works. I can't think of their name. It's been a while, oh, but I it's can't a, think the, of it. Yeah, the pyrokinetic character in that film. That's kind of the the you know one of the the secondary protagonists. That that character works, and she fills the same void that you know the same role I guess that Alice kind of fills here. But whereas Alice is just like I've got a. Uh, you know, it, it's just like say as many quippy lines as I can with, um, you know, my accent. The way yeah, it is. the sassy Irish chick. You know, it's yeah. Like, okay, well, come on. You, she could have had so much more. The character development was there for the taking. They just they didn't decide to to act upon any of it. Yeah, which is again because it's like a long. It's a long movie. They Where had did time. it go? Yeah, and it's it went to wasted motion it went to to dumb cgi again when those like hell spawns emerge um near the end of the film it's like you get like six minutes of just gratuitous people getting dismembered oh yeah and things like that and then they're not even involved like hellboy doesn't even interact with them at all it's just they come out and then they 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 you know hellboy decides he doesn't want to be um big bad demon daddy and they they go back to to hell and that's like a waste of why a waste of time right yeah yeah more more wasted motion and why is it why is it there Mm -hmm. because they think that's what the audience wants and it's not um so i don't know i don't know who's to blame for this i kind of wonder because i want to like take it out all on neil marshall yeah Um, who knows but it it yeah it it felt yeah it's just disappointing just really disappointing kind of sad too like when you think about it because it it you know it's got legs the th- the series can be we've it's been proven to be adapted yeah, it, to film absolutely it, it shouldn't be made just to make it because you think people want it because people don't want anything like 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 i guess that's the thing when i hear about this like i think of uh just to allude to a video game again like you remember uh duke nukem and oh when, yeah like duke nukem forever was like in development for like 12 years and they just decided like well might as well make it anyway and some studio whatever studio ended up with it like made it in like six months yeah and like here it is the game that's been 12 years in development but not really like it's like what this movie is this movie people will say it's it's a movie that's been um you know 13 years in development i guess um but like not really it just didn't um you know i think the film itself this film was probably developed over the course of maybe 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 more so i don't know you you might it didn't feel back. like it you know yeah and least. it yeah and it looks like it actually was shot in like 2017 but like 
yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel like something that we've been anticipating for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. You can't just slap on an intellectual property onto something and be like, people are going to like it. Um, you know, you have to, to make it meaningful. And, and this, this is pretty much everything, but. Well, on a, on a positive spin, we had been mentioning Del Toro a bit and kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, do you have a, uh, favorite Del Toro flick? Yeah. Um, I say that it's hard to kind of come to it. Um, it's kind of split between the devil's backbone and Pan's labyrinth. Mm hmm probably um i i want to see pan's labyrinth again because i think it will stick with me a little bit more i mean it's a film that he so because there is a video essay i think it's by uh i can't think of who it is off the top top of my head but it's if you if you youtube like del toro or guillermo del toro in violence it should be the first link and it's about how del toro frames um violence within his his films and Pan's Labyrinth and honestly, The Devil's Backbone are two pretty big examples of because that's the thing. Del Toro, what I think his hallmark is, is he can interweave violence with fantasy and that violence not be gratuitous, which is the exact opposite of what this movie with, with, you know, 2019 Hellboy is. It's it's implemented, but it all serves a specific purpose. Sometimes it's just so how quick things can turn on a dime, how dark people can be. How, you know, children usually are mm-hmm. are made susceptible to, to to this form of violence and what meaning it can what meaning it can convey. I, I guess I, I also like like um, Lady in the Water, where you like you think of the moment if you are not Lady in the Water. That's my uh, bad. shape of water. Shape of what Lady in the Water is not a avoid that one. <laughs> um, shape of the water is. You know, you think of the moment where, um, oh, uh, oh my God, Michael Shannon's, uh, um, you know, character, the, uh, the kind of the, 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 the big hoss that's in charge of, uh, mm-hmm. the, the whole operation containing the, the fish man. He, you know, there's a moment where he pulls his finger, you know, his fingers that have become necrotic and, um, non-existence. He, in a moment of just abandon where he realizes the only thing he has is to destroy, he destroys himself. And pulls his two corroding fingers off of his own hand and casts them aside. That's a that's a pretty telling moment, and that's a Del Toro moment. Yeah, I think and it's it's, and, it's fleeting. You know, it's there and it's right. gone, but Ex- if yeah. you break it down, it's quite grotesque. Yeah, and you don't linger on it too much. I think in Pan's Labyrinth, where you know the 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 general kind of captures these two resistance fighters, but they're using the guys that they're rabbit hunters, and they actually are rabbit hunters really like uh, at the end of the day but you know he he gets them both he acts really nice and charismatic and then he bashes one's face in in a really like shocking scene with his uh you know uh, uh, a glass bottle mm-hmm. and like it 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 ends really quickly it's there and it ends and like it 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 doesn't it's not you know you're not supposed to fixate on somebody getting their face bashed in yeah although that might be a catalyst for some of the feelings but the point being that it doesn't matter how charismatic or how charming somebody is. Violence begets that. It's salient. And, um, or violent, excuse me, it, it permeates that. It's salient. And it's it's more pervasive than than a lot of forces in human nature. And, um, yeah, that that's interesting. Again, it's violence wielded in a way 
that makes for a very, very compelling piece and very compelling sequences. And that's kind of littered throughout most of his films. But I will say just for to, to, to kind of epitomize both of them, I think the devil's, uh, um, you know, the devil's backbone pans labyrinth, probably more so my favorite del Toro film. Yeah. Not to say, you know, the other two Hellboys see those um, shape of the water is, you know, great. And I think overall maybe his most lauded film, Um, but but I I don't know. What do you think? I will say one that I'm, I, the, all the reasons why you're, you know, explaining that the, your love of Pan's Labyrinth, that's why I think there's hope for the movie that comes out later this year. The scary stories to tell in the dark film. Um, Oh yeah. I, I, the nostalgia of, you know, factors definitely rings there with me. Um, but I think that the, uh, the movie may be done, you know, d- some justice. The storyline may be done some justice with him at the helm. Um, but one of my favorites, I'd say, is probably Pacific Rim, um, just because it's that character. Oh, I forget about that. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. The second one was pretty forgettable. Um, you know, it was yeah, interesting it. in its own little way. Fun, you know, not as well done. But I, I grew up loving the, uh, you know, Godzilla films and, you know, the yeah. aspect of kaiju to me and what he did in that, that world building and creature building in Pacific Rim. Uh, I just I loved thought it was very well done. Yeah, no, that it had in his imagination, I think. And again, that's a film uh, unlike this this version of Hellboy is, you know, it's a film that it has a lot like the thing is, you can have a lot of like creatures and characters and things that catch your eye and maybe distract you momentarily but but you can make it into a cohesive whole and that you know it works in that instance and um it's funny are you are you excited about um isn't the war of the monsters god the new godzilla film i am i think that well and i think that continue um if i'm not mistaken that it continues the storyline from the first one with uh what's his name Uh, aaron johnson and brian cranston um, yeah and i think it it loops in um the skull island kong skull yes, island yes i think it, it it interweaves that in there well i'm just i'm so. pumped that i think they're finally going to do justice to the rest of uh his his uh his monsters uh his his villains with uh king Ghidorah and mothra um rodan or rodan um i think that those are going to it's just going to be fun whether or not it's a good movie you know, there's. It's gonna be. A, I think it'll just be a fun action flick that might uh, yeah. hopefully has some some more to it. But um, I I enjoyed the the other Godzilla that came out you know a couple years ago. Um, I know it was it had its its moments that were kind of yeah there were some iffy ones, but I I had fun. You know, and for some of those movies, I liked it. You just gotta like it. You just gotta go into it and say it's gonna be fun. Yeah it it was. You know, no, I, I don't really have too, ma- too many negative things to say about it. It wasn't like, it was better than uh, Godzilla 2000. Or not Godzilla 2000. What was the one I'm thinking of? The one with like, uh, You're thinking I guess nine, Godzilla- 98 with 99. Matthew Broderick? Yes. Yeah. I, see, okay. I That was one, I believe. Is that a guilty pleasure of yours? I, okay. It was the first movie I saw in theaters. Really? The very first one. My dad was a huge Godzilla fan growing up as a child. So when it came out, he was like, oh, we're going to go see this. I'm like, okay, cool. So there's a bit of a nostalgia vibe there. I yeah. enjoy it, but I know it's bad. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those, I, I'll, I'll, I'll never uh, argue with somebody who says it's a bad movie. I will agree with them 100%, but it's one that I will watch, you know, just because, you know, it has that that uh, that personal experience you know, in my in my past. 
that's fair enough. There's a, a few films like that I can think of that I know are like probably garbage, but they like it, 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 there is that bit of uh, you know there's that bit of uh, um, that nostalgia maybe like that kind of that like personal memory that that mm-hmm. intimacy that you kind of associate with them. I'm trying to think of like the ones I can think of um, would be like Jarhead is like one of the first like even though that's actually a pretty good film by, yeah like by itself but like that was like the f- first rated r film i saw with my dad okay. in theaters and like that one has a bit of a um you know i think that one in particular kind of kind of sticks with me in that sense i do remember i think godzilla the 98 one did put me on the tangent where like because at the time my parents had like the blockbuster um, you know, where you like over the summer, it'd have like a blockbuster deal where you could yep. like go and rent. I think you could have any movie for the entire month. It didn't matter the entire summer season for how long. And you could just, you just paid like a monthly subscription and it was kind of like Netflix, I guess you just go and, uh, pick out whatever you want and come back and watch it. And you just go and we lived really close to the blockbuster and they had just like the one we were, that was at, uh, by our house had like a wall of, uh, of uh old godzilla vhs tapes like toho ones that were poorly poorly dubbed over yep all terrible but i watched like 20 goddamn godzilla films in a uh like a probably like a two-week span and i i don't know that was a really fun time it was also the the same time i learned to cook ramen noodles for myself so i was like i'm self-sustaining i got my own entertainment and i can make food for myself and like it was i don't know it was weird it was like a moment of like agency but not really like the most pathetic moment of you know (laughs) developing agency you could think of but um yeah i think we all kind of what i want to say we all kind of forgive like godzilla for that i think so but i mean it's i think everybody goes on that list and it's if i look at the uh you know every now and then we'll i'll look up those lists for uh drunk driving and i'll say you know what is uh you know Give me some of the best bad movies, and it's on almost every single person's list. Yeah, you know, it's like there there are redeeming qualities to it, but not enough to make it a good movie. Yeah, no it it doesn't it doesn't like hold. Yeah, it doesn't hold up. I mean, if you you really have to switch your your critical brain off to like kind of enjoy that. I, I'm learning that like lately there are some times where it's like, you know, you, you will not enjoy a film very much if you're looking to critique it, but it's hard not to. It's yeah. not just a moment. I mean, we, you, we all you do, switch it. On and we off. do it. But uh, did you see, speaking of Godzilla, a very recent rendition, uh, did you see Shin Godzilla? No, I did not. Is that, uh, that, was that the Netflix one? No. Um, well, it, it might be on Netflix. There's a series that's on Netflix. It's a film. It's a Toho film. It's a reimagining. They did... Um, they did... Uh, I think it's 2017. Okay. And it's it kind of reboots Godzilla in a sense that it still has to do with, like, nuclear devastation. It kind okay. of pulls from, you know, the earthquakes and tsunamis that hit Japan um, a few years ago. It pulls with like, what if that beget Godzilla? And instead of like a, a you know, abruptly he's a giant monster that's coming to tear the city. He's this like grotesque thing that keeps getting bigger. Like it's weird. It, it, hmm. He's like that. He truly is like this like product of radiation, and it's a new vision for him. And it's not the one where it's like 
oh, this is the Godzilla that will fight for us. Kind of like what we're seeing in the the, the American Godzilla, yeah. I guess we're seeing right now. It it's this like Godzilla as a monster again and the sole antagonist. But that's represents... cool. I, I'll have to check it out. No, I'm, I'm looking yeah. it up right now, and it does look you, pretty interesting. You, it, it's pretty. Good. It's actually a good film. Like it, it, you know, surprisingly, it's it's really well made. So, um, check it out if you can. We'll do. We'll do. All right. So we're looking at uh, getting about just to the end here. Before we give our final rating and final thoughts on Hellboy, we're going to take a quick little break. Go to the lobby. Uh, Go ahead and get a quick refill. We don't have much time left, but if you want to get a refill on your drinks, your snacks, all that fun stuff, uh, we'll see what is coming up soon from Eventide, and we'll see you on the other side. Ah, hello there. My name is Wallace J. Crumplebottom, and when it's early in the morning, there's nothing that gets me ready for a long day of bean counting quite like a good breakfast. And there's no better breakfast than a brand new episode of The Breakfast Lads. Take it from me. I'm British, so I must know what I'm talking about. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. for a brand new episode of The Breakfast Lads, brought to you by Eventide Entertainment. What makes a great radio show? How about a host that knows his stuff? Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, isn't that a fish? You need guests with lots of class. And dude, yeah. what's up with this mic? Did somebody have this mic under their armpit? Because it <laughs> smells... Willing to stick around even at the end of the world. There will still be Kansas SpaghettiOs laying exactly. around. Exactly, and Twinkies. Yep. Bam. Yep. And Keith Richards. It's The Life with Don Smith. Tuesdays on WWSU 106.9 FM from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. And Fridays on the Eventide Entertainment Podcast feed. Every week, join us for a brand new episode doing a radio show because we are idiots be there or be square all right we are back for the final review final thoughts on hellboy um so daniel something that we do uh on the drive-in every week is uh, we try to instead of doing five, four out of five stars, very very similar to what uh, you do over at the um, was it uh, Cinematropolis, is that mm-hmm. you, you you put your own different spin on uh, the rating scale. So um, we do something from the movie or something uh, you know humorous, something relevant. Um, you know, at times we've done uh, you know severed fingers or you know for a horror movie or you know. Whatever it might be. Do you have uh, something in mind that stands out for uh, for Hellboy for a rating scale? Oh, yeah. I give it one appendage of the uh, <laughs> of the Red Queen, Blood Queen. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, that you're trying to unite out of uh, out of uh, however many there are. I think there were five. It, I mean, it, five. Yeah, that's that one out of five. Out because oh, I mean, God. her torso, I don't think really counted as one of them, but. I mean, because you have the head, the arms, legs. Yeah. So maybe six, but, you know, if we just do appendages. Yeah. I also give it um, zero decaying Merlins out of one. <laughs> maybe that, I don't know. It, not good, I guess. It's the... Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there. I definitely think that, I mean, Harbor for me is its redeeming factor. Um, his portrayal of Hellboy was fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about the the um the man beast character because it just again like so many other things in this movie just felt like it was thrown in just so we had something to look at yeah Um, 
So I, I, I think that if you wanna if you wanna see a good Hellboy movie, go back to Del Toro's. Uh, if you wanna see a new Hellboy movie, lower your expectations um, and and block out two hours because it is it's very lengthy and it just didn't give you much to go off of. Um, you know, and it, just, it w- yeah yeah not much to, to redeem it. No, it's eye candy. Mm-hmm. Like like if it, eye candy was like a fucking green warhead that's been left out. In the like gutter for two months, yeah. And you just know something. You, you know it's gonna hurt when you when you pop it in, <laughs> but you're like, okay, well, it it, it might be worth the uh, the canker sore that uh, you'll get from it. Maybe um, it'll be, um, yeah. And I mean, I think it's probably inevitable. This one's gonna be on some kind of streaming service, trying to, you know, desperately try and, uh, you know, finagle whatever deal it can. Uh, on any platform to make its money back, so I, I suspect any of the prominent streaming so- uh, platforms will will see it there within six months or less. Which it'll it'll definitely be one of those that as soon as it comes out on on uh, you know Blu-ray DVD, it'll be within a week or two. It'll be on one of them. You know, occasionally you yeah. get one that you're like, wow, that's already on Netflix. Hellboy will be one of those. Yeah, Hellboy will be will be. One of them. You might not realize it was on Netflix until like maybe twenty twenty one. You'll be like, oh, it's just <laughs> that thing's weird. been on Netflix this long. Yeah, but it's yeah. I don't. I don't know. I want to try and find something redeemable, and I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. It has a it has a decent performer at its helm, but like you know, Stranger Things three is just around the corner. Probably be out around the same time that's his Netflix inevitably. <laughs> yeah. uh, They'll tack just, them on together. Yeah, maybe maybe pick Stranger Things three instead, and yeah. and. I don't know, but well, I thanks for coming on, Daniel. This yeah, is, this is I good. sorry for not being on sooner. And <laughs> B, um, I was happy to have it. You know, it was weird when we were talking earlier. I was like, man, we we only spent like forty minutes on us, and that was between four of us. And that was a film we were all passionate about. Um, granted, the the mediator of uh. uh uh, the editor in chief of the Cinematropolis, and thus the mediator of that podcast, the Cinematic Schematic, which you should check out, any of your viewers. Um, it's um, you know where I think we're we're on a bit more of a, a rigid structure there. Yeah. Um, whereas, like you were mentioning, this is way more conversational. Yeah. The it it like um, it's it's weird. I did not think we would talk about this for so long. I was telling you, I thought I was like a little taken aback that we'd go over an hour, and here we are at. Approaching almost the length of the film. Yeah, there we go. We're getting close. I, I always Talk- <laughs> there's very few films that are podcasts that I think are worth it. This one's not, so we have to finish before two hours. You know, I won't let this one go past it. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, we'll have to get you on again here soon. Um, and and bring me something- on for the. Yeah, the drunk one. Whatever the one is where where you drink. Well, if you, you take gotta make people your way to Ohio, up. man. We gotta we gotta do one. Uh, uh, let's find some time. Get you over here. Um, those are always fun. We uh, we you know what we do is we watch a movie, play a drinking game, and then as we are done, you know, drinking after we've watched this bad movie, we talk about it uh, while we continue drinking. Maybe you know we just watch a bad movie or talk bad movies and just get drunk while we do it. You know, maybe something okay. like that. If we can't get you out here. We'll we'll get you on a. A modified version of it. Be a good time. Uh, well, we'll make our way there soon, inevitably. So, uh, it, where can people find you uh, on social media? Anything like that? Uh, go ahead and you know plug away, man. Okay. Well, um, you can find me 
Um, just search Daniel Bowcamper or Twitter Bowcamper. Um, just spell it the best you can. You'll you'll make your way to me. <laughs> um, the the uh, you can find me at thecinematropolis.com. I'm a, an associate editor there, but I'm also writing fairly frequently and as well as contributing to their podcast, The Cinematic Schematic. Excuse me. Check out my recent review and analysis of Leica's Missing Link, which is very positive, unlike Hellboy 2019, <laughs> as well as our review of Us that I did alongside uh, a few of my colleagues, um, including Christopher Schultz, uh, Laron Chapman, and Caleb Masters. Um, again, a positive uh, review of, of, of a very good film, in our opinion. Um, also, check me out at World Literature Today. Um, I have a somewhat recent review of Desirable Body, a kind of a horror film, I guess, by uh, Hubert, or horror, excuse me, novel by uh, Hubert Haddad, as well as a review of uh, Elaine McCombo's. I feel like I've been reviewing a lot of this this guy's stuff lately, but I've done three pieces for World Literature Today over him. Uh, But they never disappoint of his uh, text, Broken Glass. Uh, There'll be another one coming out soon. So if you can check it out online, do so, or get a subscription to World Literature Today. We are the recent champions of uh, Lit Mag Madness, or Literature Magazine Madness. We beat out a uh, publication in Texas, Iron Horse, who are the reigning champions. Um, I think they were just hoping that people didn't know what Twitter was and that they could vote <laughs> online. So we showed them with our, our, our retweeting prowess. And... Uh, <laughs> Also, uh, check me out periodically, wickedhorror.com. I've been writing um, a periodic reviews of Fight Club 3, Chuck Palahniuk's uh, comic sequel to the sequel that was also a comic book of his film, uh, or excuse me, his novel, Fight Club. And uh, anywhere else where Daniel Bocampers are sold, um, you probably probably find me. I, I mean, I don't look too hard. Um, it might not be worth it. But otherwise, uh, <laughs> Cinematropolis and World Lit Today for sure. Find me on Twitter. Uh, find me on uh, Facebook if you can. Um, if not, just don't worry about it. And uh, Instagram, probably. I think I have one of those. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think I have one. And I think about five years ago, I posted one picture. And then I, you know, it's it's still active. It's out there somewhere. Mine but... too. Yeah. No, <laughs> we are we are very similar in that yep. way. Pretty, pretty much the same, same well, thing. Well, awesome. But... Awesome. A uh, couple uh, things to, to finish up on. Special thanks to Dre and Kim for supporting the show. If you'd also like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com, uh, search The Drive-In, hosted by Aaron Lopez, and you will find uh, how you can get some, some cool swag for the show. Uh, also, get more information on The Drive-In on Facebook by searching The Drive-In, hosted by Aaron Lopez. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter for some movie information. Uh, also, too, coming up, um, some live tweeting of my Marvel movie marathon, getting ready for Endgame. Um, this will be interesting. This weekend we'll be spending uh, pretty much three straight days watching Marvel movies. Uh, do some live tweeting of that. And uh, speaking of that, that will be the the topic for next week. Um, I'm going to take about five, ten minutes after each movie, do a quick little review, string them together. Uh, and that will be coming out on uh, uh, April 26th, just in time for Endgame. So uh, look forward to that. As well as, as we mentioned earlier, the Avengers Endgame 
you know, uh, drive-in crossover episode with Mike Talks Movies that will premiere live. First time uh, drive-in is going to be doing a live stream on April 28th, Sunday, April 28th at 5 p.m. And check all of those places, Twitter, Facebook, etc., uh, for some more information on where you can catch that. Uh, and finally, check out uh, me and Mike Shea next week on The Life with Don Smith as we promote that live show. Um, I'm sure we, we'll talk about it for a couple minutes and we'll get into Don's world and who knows what we'll talk about. It'll be a good show. Uh, but until then, um, Daniel, thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, check hey, him, thank you for having me. Check him out on all his, his uh, multitude of writings. Um, I know. You know, I, I check out Cinematropolis here and there, and they're, they're always a good time. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get you on here for something better next time. Um, you know, hey, it's a start. We're, hey, keep Dune keep Dune open. I have dibs on that if no one else does. So just... <laughs> no one has yet. Have they, have they finished filming on that yet, though? Probably not. It, we're we're looking at they... <laughs> it might be like two or three years from now, but we'll, <laughs> we'll pencil you in. Cool. All right, Perfect. guys. Until next time, drive home safe. We'll see you later. See ya. Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations.